Hey everybody, my name is Jack Zweig. Quick introduction. I'm sure everybody here knows Abe. Love Abe. Uh, he really embodies what I think one of the aspects of why we called platforms platforms. So one of the reasons we called it platforms is because if you look on Google, one of the things is that a political platform is a group of ideas that they wish to present into the world. So what we have is not a political platform, but our own platform of ideas that we wish to actually see in the world and how we actually view it and how what we want to actually be presented and very much furthered in this world. So Abe very much encompasses that because everything he does and everything he says gets us further. And we all learn tremendously from Abe and without further ado, Abe. No pressure. <laughs> Thanks, Jackie. That's a uh, really nice, although I think a little unwarranted compliment, but appreciated. Um, thank you, Ari, for hosting us graciously. Thank you, uh, Ohad and Jackie, for orchestrating, as always, the the great platforms. Um, as I said, I always you know appreciate getting invited to speak here. It adds this additional pressure, in a good way, to you know dedicate more time to delve deeper into issues that I otherwise probably wouldn't have dedicated the proper time to. Um, and, you know, a lot of interesting things personally come out of these sorts of sessions that I have in preparing for these shrooms. So thank you guys a lot. And it's always a huge pleasure to share with you guys. So just to begin, um, you know, I wanted to speak a little bit about Pesach now that it's coming up. I was a little bit, you know, you know, in the, in the fence on what to speak about. Um, there's so much, so many different angles to target. And, I, you know, I, I came across, you know, this question that has been literally bothering me for years. And it's part of the basic storyline, which is something that, you know, is sometimes side-shelved in the story of the Yitzhak Mitzrayim and presenting ideas of Pesach, because a lot of times we speak about sort of the more philosophical ideas of freedom, you know, of slavery, of what these things mean conceptually, and they're abstract. And we have sort of this opposite approach that we see built into the Seder night in the mitzvah of Haggadah and to be Mesaper B'Yetzias Mitzrayim, to tell the story of B'Yetzias Mitzrayim, and that it's not abstract principles that we're discussing. We're not discussing the general theme of freedom per se. What instead we're doing is we're navigating through the storyline of Yitzhak Mitzrayim and seeing how these principles are actually embodied in the storyline. So we sort of live through that storyline, we sample that narrative, and from it we then can abstract away, can parse away the philosophical concepts. But it comes that first you navigate through the storyline and then come sort of the philosophical broad principles, you know? So it's just a little bit of a different way that I was thinking about doing it because I was thinking about presenting sort of more philosophical, broad, general ideas. And instead, you know, I ended up delving deeper into the storyline itself. And so that's a little bit what we're going to touch today. So there's, you know, if you go through the partios of Yetzirah Mitzrayim, starting from Shmos and going all the way through Bishalach, you know, something strikes at you 
that you can avoid if you're reading if you're reading the text carefully, and that is that the main character of these stories is Paro. It's not Bnei Israel, you know. It's not Mitzrayim. Maybe you could say it's Moshe, and we see a massive contrast in Moshe and Paro. But the centrality of even Moshe's role revolves around Paro, which is a very weird thing once you point out. You know, so even how HaKadosh Baruch Hu presents to Moshe what he's supposed to do in the first initial encounter by the Sneh that ends up lasting seven days, you know, it ends up becoming a different thing. If you track the dialogue and what each, each one is saying, what HaKadosh Baruch Hu originally presents, what Moshe says back, how that causes HaKadosh Baruch Hu to kind of shift paths, if you read carefully, what God says in the beginning, the only thing that he tells Moshe to do in the beginning is he says, You know, now go, I'll send you to Paro. And, you know, take out my nation, Bnei Israel, from Mitzrayim. And that's the main thing. And then Moshe, in his response, ends up including Bnei Israel. What am I going to tell Bnei Israel? How are they going to believe me? And he also, you know, through that dialogue, God ends up saying, the next time he says, okay, go to Paro, he says, go Israel. You know, now go with the elderly. You know, have them accompany you, and then you can go with Paro accompanied. But the original bare bones sort of request that God has with Moshe is to go to Paro. And, and that's sort of a structure that ends up being preserved across all Makos. So that every massive transition in this story revolves around Paro and telling Paro. So each of the Makos, whenever Moshe goes and warns Paro, he's not warning Israel. He's not warning Mitzrayim. We make it a thing that he has to go and warn Paro again and again. I mean, so much so that when Moshe is actually coming to warn Paro on the last set of Makos, he actually says, you know, I, you know, through God, you know, I could have destroyed you, right? And Bavur Zote Maticha, I've only left you standing for this. Bavur Harosecha Eskochi, so that I show you my force. And so my name be spoken about in all the land. But it's clearly like he is the tool by which this is accomplished. The story centers around him. And it's a very strange thing. And it's even stranger if you consider the fact that all these times that we go and we ask Paro is totally unnecessary. Not just unnecessary, it's literally serving no explicit purpose. Because God tells Moshe before he goes every single time, and he's going to say no. So, so what is this farce exactly? Why does Moshe indeed have to go to Paro every single time, knowing full well that we don't really care about his answer because we know his answer? And, and if you sort of like, you know, get the feel of the attitude of Moshe, it's exactly that he goes, he's presenting his case. He doesn't really care much for Paro's answer, and he walks away every single time like that. So the request that seems to be happening is a farce. You know, it's deceptive. It's deeply deceptive to Paro. And, you know, the deception goes even deeper than that because in the requests themselves, it doesn't seem like we're absolutely honest. So there's this thing that comes up at the beginning. You know, we're, we're, we're in that initial interaction between God and, and Moshe. And what he's going to say to Paro, you know, we're going to go on a three-day journey in the desert and 
we shall sacrifice, we shall bring offerings to God our God. And look, I, I know that he's not going to let you go. And not because he's, you know, being pressured. That's at least how the Malbim reads it. Meaning, by his own will, he's not letting you guys go. So look, I'm going to send out, stretch out my arm. I'm going to end up striking Egypt, and all of my wonders, that I will do in his midst. And afterwards, he'll send you out. I mean, this, and it's a weird thing, right? Like, you know, three days? That's a lie. That doesn't, that's not true. So you think, okay, you know, the terms were revised afterwards. No, they're not revised. And it, it keeps on coming up. So look, when he actually goes to Paro, the second source, it's part of that initial request. We're going to go three-day trip, three-day journey in the desert. Oh, oh I forgot there. Two-sided. And again, and another piece, you know, the next source, source Kav Gimel, again, in the next series of warnings that he, that he has, he says, again, it's a three-day journey. Don't get confused. It's a three-day journey that's happening. So you say, fine, something happens in the transition. By the end, you know, it's clear that when Paro lets them go, it's a real letting go, right? No, wrong. You can't say that. How do I know? Because what causes Paro to chase after them again. And that's at the end of the story, you have this, right? So look at the source that Rashi brings, Vayugad Lamelech Mitzrayim, when you know, the king of Egypt is told, Kivorachaam, that B'nai Israel escaped. Escaped? What do you mean? I thought you said, Parah, that you had sent them out. What do you mean, escaped? So Rashi says, you know, Iktorin Shlachimahem, he sent his undercover spies, Kivan once the three day mark came, you know, they had been out in the desert for three, day, three days and their time came, you know, to, you know, that they had established to go and come back. And they saw that they didn't go back. They, they had, you know, they're not coming back to Egypt. So they came on the fourth day. They told Paro, on the sixth, on the fifth and on the sixth, they chase after him. And the night of the seventh, they go into the Yam. You know, and in the morning, that's when they say Shira. And that's the whole, you know, story of Yamsuf. But it's built in. The deception, you know, is carried along the whole way. That's crazy. Why would you have to do that? That's an insane thing. Why is that such a... I mean, it literally drove me crazy for like the past three years. And look, and, and the Mepharshim have answers, you know? What are the kind of answers that they have? So, so they say, you know, like, they, you know, you needed this type of deception to basically lure them into Yamsuf. So Kodesh Baruch Hu, you know, the deception worked well because it ended up luring them to Yamsuf. Come on. Come on. Or, you know, you say, you know, they, they deserve it. Mira, keneged mira. Why? Well, because, you know, they sort of deceived us into coming in. You know, what power says to Mitzrayim, you know, let's outsmart them. Let's outwit them. Let's sort of, you know, get them into our, our mastery slowly but surely. So we can also outsmart them, outwit them. It's difficult to say. You know, it seemed like, like rationalizations. And, I mean, for me, the reason why none of those answers satisfied me is because it clearly seems like it's an essential part of the story 
that it governs from the beginning, the middle, the end. It literally generates, it causes them to go back to the Yamsuf. Why did it have to be that way? Clearly, obviously, you could conceive of many alternative ways in which HaKadosh Baruch Hu could have grabbed them you know, into the sea if he wanted to without this sort of deception. It's, it's seriously problematic. So you're going to have to explain to me not how you can justify it. Why is it necessary? Why does it have to be there? Why is it an integral part of the story? And that's not the only part of the deception. If you go back to that original request in the first source, the last pasuk, you know, in the one right before, and I'll shed give the, the favor of the nation, of the Jews, in the eyes of Egypt, and when they leave, you know, the Jews, when they leave Mitzrayim, they're not going to leave empty-handed. You know, and each woman is going to ask her neighbor, each, each Jewish woman is going to ask her Egyptian neighbor for, you know, nice little ornament, jewelry, silver jewelry, gold jewelry, smalot, nice clothing to go out. You know, they're going to go out. And part of that is to fulfill what Akkadosh Baruch Hu had promised to Avraham in his original telling of the fact that there will be Mitzrayim and it will happen but that they will be taken out and God says you know they're going to come out you know with unbelievable wealth they're going to be enriched they're going to be you know they're going to come out in jeweled a wealthy nation but look at the request and I, I, I'm sorry I didn't include some of the sources that I'm going to talk about because there are a lot but many Mepharshim are even more bothered, even more than the three days, is this piece. Because means you will borrow from them. You will borrow their jewelry, their clothes. You're borrowing it. You're going to give it back, right? And of course, that's literally what they say, you know, on Paro's end, he says the whole thing about three days. When Paro chases them back, you know, to the Yamsuf, he goes with his whole, you know, a massive the elite unit that he has of the remainder of Mitzrayim. And what causes them to go? It's exactly this. Look at the source. Let me see where this guy is. Oh, so that same bus, uh, uh, source, the back part, page two of eight. The second source, so God. So look at Vayahafech. So when the, the, the nation of Mitzrayim hears what happened, their heart changes. Their hearts switch. There's a little switcheroo that happens in the way that they're feeling. Because, you know, the, the Mitzrayim were the first ones that were expelling every, all the Jews. You know, you got to get out of here right now. Get the heck out of here. You know, quick. And that's the whole machlokes in the Gemara, is the Bechipazon, when we say that the Jews left in a haste, was that the haste generated by the Jews or the haste generated by the Mitzrayim? And we need you out of here. So there's a switcheroo that happened. On the one hand, you know, we see at the end, after Marcus Bechorus, they're saying, get the heck out of here. And there's a switcheroo that happens. And their hearts change. And now they're going back to reclaim, you know, what they had lent out. The Jews had borrowed these things. It's crazy. It's crazy. So again, you have the Mepharshim that say, no, you know, it's 
It's reparations. That's what the Orachim says. You know, it's reparations. Slavery reparations, you know? Look at all the work. How much work did the Jews do for the, for the Jews? Okay, much more than anything that they gave, so they deserve it. Come on. For, fine, I agree that that's definitely true. That's a necessary part. It's not sufficient. It doesn't exhaust the explanation of why you need to have that. Why do you need to have that? Vesha Why do you need to have that peace? That's a crazy thing to say. Why is the deception built in? Not just in the fact that you're asking para, because we know that that's just a farce. You don't need to ask. You're not waiting for any answer. You know the answer. But in the very request, in the format of that request, and the very request that ends up, you know, enriching you guys and, and literally, you know, you know, making you rich from all of the stuff that you borrowed from the Egyptians. It's crazy. And look, Paro is super distressed by this whole thing. I mean, in the whole interactions back and forth, he's trying to negotiate. Right? That's the whole thing. Like, he is trying to negotiate. So look, so he says, you know, so when Paro is trying to, to seed a little bit of ground, So let me go actually before the first source. I know we're going back and forth, back and forth um, on page two of eight. So he says, so Vaikra Paro, you know, he's starting to seed. It's the first time that Paro seeds a little bit of ground. He says, Vaikra Paro Moshe Laharon, you know, Paro calls Moshe Naharon, Vayomer Lechuzifchu Lelokechem Ba'aretz. You know, you guys said that you want to just, you know, do a little service for your God. More than welcome to do it right here in Egypt. That's what you guys want to do. You just, got, you just want to serve your God. You know, you can do it right here in Egypt. Why not? I'm letting you guys do it. You know, you guys can have a couple of days holiday vacation paid by me. Come on. We're not going to do that. God forbid we're going to offend the Mitzvah, you know. <laughs> They're not going to like that. or you going to offer their gods. You know, they don't like lamb, sheep. You know, they like those things. They don't eat them. They don't offer them. No, we're not going to offend the Mitzvah, you know. We're going to come to the very things that, you know, to the eyes of the Mitzvah is, it, it would be a, you know, desecration to do those things. We're going to offer it right in front of their eyes. They're not going to stone us. Come on, Paro. So you're telling me? No, no, no. We're not going to do that, right? We're not going to do that. Okay. Once again, we're going to go three days to the Midbar. We're going to serve God our God. Like he's told us. I mean, look at the fact of how Moshe literally doesn't even pay attention to what Paro responds back. Paro says, Okay, guys, I'm going to send you guys out. You guys are going to offer your, your, to your God, you know, in the, in the Midbar. Don't go too far. You know, you guys are coming back in three days. Don't go too far. By the way, can you guys pray for me? You know, this whole thing, it's, I'm a little, you know, can you guys pray for me a little bit? Like, you know, get rid of this whole thing. It's, it's, it's a little, it's bothers somebody. Yeah, you know, I'm going I'm to pray to God, etc., etc. And, you know, the crazy thing is every time, you know, when Paros begins to seed ground and he starts saying, I'm going to send them out, Motion never follows up on any of those times that he says it. It's like he literally doesn't care. <laughs> he's like going, he's saying his piece, and he doesn't really care what Paros says back. Even when Paro tries to engage him in negotiations, it's like, so, so you know, you guys can't do that? No. Mm. No, 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 we're not doing that. You know? It's crazy. And he takes it seriously. Not only that, Paro 
knows that they're lying. He tells them, guys are a bunch of liars. It's written all over your face. When does he say that? The last source or the one right before? He says, again, another attempt to negotiate. So he says, he brings Moshe and Aaron back after they had a little bit of a dispute, Moshe Aaron and, and, uh, and Paro. You know what? Fine. Go serve your God. Just tell me, who's actually going to go? Hmm? Children all the way to the elderly. <laughs> Every single possible person that you can imagine that's going to be included. We're, we're all going. If that's not enough, if that doesn't give over there, we're going to go. Our, our sons, our daughters, all of our cattle, all of our animals, all of our flock, everything. Do I need to specify a little bit more? Because it's going to be you know, a nice festival for God. I mean, what an amazing way to finish this. Look, the evil is written all over your face. <laughs> you guys are a bunch of liars. What are you telling me? That it's all about serving God. The kids serve God? That's what you're telling me. Enough with this. What are you trying to do here? It's written all over your face. Do so you think I'm an idiot? Come on. And the Ramban obviously reads it that way, that the Ra'aneged Pnechem is about the fact they're trying to escape. They're presenting it in these deceptive terms and they're trying to escape. They're trying to, to, to you know, uh, fool Paro. And Paro catches on. So even if you want to say that that deception, you know, is actually to get Paro to see it more than he otherwise would have, it's not true. Paro doesn't believe them. You know, he, he says, you guys are lying. You know what the craziest thing is? You know why you need all of this? You know who realizes it? Paro's cabinet. Avdei Paro, they, they actually realize what's happening. And they actually realize it in this paragraph. Within this context, you know, the original thing, you know, the context right before here, is that Moshe and Aaron come, once again, to warn that there's gonna be, once again, another Maka, and, you know, they leave, the same thing as always, Paro's gonna say no. They say, they leave, and they turn. Vayumru avde paro elav. Again, page two, the source right before the last one. Vayumru avde paro elav. The servants of Paro say, Ad Mosai Paro. Till when? Bro, when are you gonna realize? They're literally playing you. Dude. Dude, I'm telling you. <laughs> They're messing with you. And they keep doing it. And you keep falling for it. It's crazy. Till when is this going to be a trap for you? Like, when are you going to realize what's happening here? Send these guys out. Let them serve their God. Are you blind? Don't you see? that Mitzrayim is gone already. There's nothing to save anymore. What the heck is the matter with you, bro? They're actually, literally making a fool out of you. What do you mean? They're playing you. That's exactly right. They catch on. Paro's being duped. He's being played. How do I know? God says that. 
in this exact Parsha, a couple of psukim before, how he introduces this Parsha of Bo. He says, um, it's, it's in the middle of page three, you know, when he's saying to, to Moshe, God is once again telling Moshe, come to Paro, etc. He says to him, you know, all of the things that I'm doing, it's that you'll be able to recount in the ears of your sons, and your grandchildren, how I played with Egypt. I played with them. And the signs that I've put in front of them, so that they should know that I'm God. In Italalti, like Rashi says, I played with them. They were played, and played has that tone within this context of mockery. I mocked them. You know, Paro is being mocked. It's a crazy thing. The Avde Paro, their cabinet, it's so apparent that they themselves pointed out, and they're exactly right. Of course, the whole thing is a farce. Of course, they don't really care what Paro has to say. Of course, everything that they're saying is intentionally implied so that Paro hears it a specific way. It's crazy. Why does he have to get duped? What does it mean that he's getting played? So the Ram presents an amazing Kiddush in his Hilchus Teshuvah. Part of the whole context of how could you say that God hardens Paro's heart? So he says, look, if you know, it, it actually is possible that a person does a Chet that is so great, or many so that their judgment becomes for this person that did all these sins willingness with awareness that they block him from doing teshuvah and don't allow him space to return from his evilness so that he should die and he'll end up perishing with that chet in his hands. Because, you know, that's why you can say that his heart was hardened, God hardens Paro's heart. Because first he sinned to himself. And caused all of these, you know, you know, uh, tragedies to Yisrael, Hagorim Barzo, that live in his land, like we said, you know, let's outsmart them, how do we outwit them? You know, so the judgment is that his teshuva should be blocked from him. And therefore, a Baruch Hu strengthened his heart. What is that supposed to mean? You know, how could he take away Bechira? It's not taking away Bechira, right? When he says, which is the proof that the Rambam brings for the fact that this is what he wanted. You understand? He wanted it so bad. Let's literally, he set up a council to philosophize how it is, with what tactics, what strategies they can implement to literally take down the Jews under their control. That's crazy. That's what he wants, right? Sometimes the choices that you make are so real that you can't take them back. It's showing the fact and the reality of choice by doing that. You understand? 
It's actually the opposite of what people think. It's not that it's taking away choice. It's giving weight to the fact of choice. If I do a choice, and I can take it back whenever, and I can do that ad infinitum as many times as I want, then there's never any choice because you can always take it back. You're never bound to anything that you do. Right? That's not really choice. Choice means that it actually has real impact. It made a difference. You're causing a difference in how things end up playing out. To say that he could just retract it under the slightest bit of pressure is to make a mockery out of the reality of choice. To say instead that sometimes choices are so real that you can't take them back is to give choice a tremendous amount of weight. Right? Is to actually say, no, that's what you wanted, right? I'm not going to let you take that back now that you're under a little bit of duress. No, not, not going to let you. Isn't the retraction itself also a decision? What's the retraction? I'm saying when you want to go back on a decision, that's also a decision itself. That's true. And look, at the end of the day, I think that this Ramam is incomplete. Because, you know, that's a famous measure that Paro does do to Shuvah. Right, Micha Mocha, that's the Medrash, you know, he has the water in his throat and he's saying Micha Mocha, ends up being king of Nineveh. So how could he use that as an example? That's a great question. But I think that it's talking about a different quality of choice. Meaning, the first choice that he made, if it's so real, if it has so much weight, that it overrides any subsequent choices, then it's already assuming the fact that that initial choice, you know, shelves any subsequent choices unless they reach a state equal or better that's one possible answer again i'm not saying that's definitive but you clearly have to deal with the problem that the ramam brings him as the example and we know we have a medrash that he you know ends up doing teshuvah becomes king of Ninveh, which is the city of teshuvah which we read about in yom kippur i mean that's not a coincidence obviously the rambam knew the medrash right so i think within the context of we're talk of what we're talking about is that that initial choice is so real that it actually detracts from your ability, your wanting, whatever you want to say, of ever actually having a genuine choice afterwards. But if that were to come theoretically, who's to say that that wouldn't actually take place? But the, the thing is, like, will that actually come? You know, Within this context, if you just isolate this Rambam, it seems like no. It seems like, like, yeah, it's like you're saying, could you have a choice that ends up actually generating more impact you know, with more weight than the original choice? In theory, yes. In practice, no. Practice, it won't happen. That's one way of just within the isolation of this Ramam to answer that. So, you know, so the Ramam continues. So, okay, so that establishes why he has to harden his heart. So why does he send him Beyad Moshe, the Omer, you know, our question. Why does he keep sending, you know, Moshe, the Omer, Shalach, Vasei Teshuvah, you know, sends him as if he's telling him, you know, do Teshuvah, Ukvar, Amar, Lo, Kalish, Baruch Hu, Eina, Tameh, Shalach. You know, he's not going to be sent out. So why does Kalish, Baruch repeatedly send Moshe with this farce of send my, let my people go, you know, which isn't happening. And of course, he brings the Vulamba Vurzosa and Maticha, like we said at the beginning. The point is this in order to inform of this crazy principle to everybody around, that once Akkadish Baruch is Munea Teshuva to the Chote, following that path, he can never return back, he never do Teshuva, rather, he's going to die with that in his hand. Meaning, one way of reading this Rambam 
is to say, we're exposing Paro. That's exactly what we're doing. We're showing somebody that can't let go of his initial choice. That's what we're doing. So you, you guys want to see, you know, to teach that to everybody around, to teach your free people what it means to choose. And you have this unbelievable contrast of what you have in front of you of number one, the reality of what choice itself means, how it does impact things well in the future of the moment within which you're acting and how people can be so locked in that they are literally perceived as insane. Your own cabinet sees you as literally you lost your mind. What world do you live in? Like, look around you. You're crazy. Paro is being exposed and he's being played like crazy. It's hilarious. If you look at that you know, and reread the dialogue between Moshe and Paro, every time Paro is negotiating, he thinks that it's actually serious. He thinks that there's something to talk about, right? Okay, Moshe, you know what? I'm granting you a little bit of crown. You know what? I'm, I'm willing to sit with you at the table. Who's going to go? Everyone. Um, can you guys turn here? No. Uh, okay, you guys can't take your sheep, right? You're not going to take your cattle. No, we're going to take your cattle. And by the way, we're going to take, we're going to take our cattle and we're going to take yours too. <laughs> I mean, it's crazy. The mockery is that like Moshe literally doesn't care. And Paro is taking this with so seriously as if he's still in control. And that's the amazing mockery, right? Okay, Paro. Play around like, you know, Paro is still the king. You know, eh, Paro still has control. Yeah, you guys can't leave yet. No. <laughs> All right, Paro. See you tomorrow. You know? <laughs> It's hilarious. I mean, he has no power at all. And Paro literally believes he takes everything that he says seriously. No. Yes. Let's negotiate terms as if it's serious. And it's a joke. There's nothing to be spoken about. You understand? I'm not taking anything that you say in the least bit seriously. I, I, if Paro says, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to let them out. I'm going to let them out. Moshe leaves and he never falls out. Because like, bro, sit down. <laughs> Have a drink. You know? What are you doing? You know, I don't really care what you're trying to tell me. I mean, it's making a massive mockery. And they catch on. And that's unbelievable. So the ambiguity of the request of saying three days is intentional. Look through the psukim. Moshe never lies. Not one word there is a lie. What does he say? Derech shaloshes yamin. It's all that he says. And the Farshim point this out. Look, he didn't lie. It, for sure it's deceptive. For sure it's built in with his lack of clarity, ambiguity on purpose never lies. What did I say? Paro, repeat to me my words. What did I say? It's a three-day journey. <laughs> I didn't say we're going to take three days. I didn't say we're going to be back after three I never said any of that. I gave you the room to interpret that because that's what you wanted to hear, didn't you? You wanted to hear that you were still in control, right? You wanted to hear that you were never going to let go of, of, of the Jews. You read it as you wanted to. I never said that. I never said we were coming back. So the ambiguity is part of this mockery of just like he lets Paro believe that the negotiation is real, just like he lets Paro believe that the asking is real, he also lets Paro believe that the conditions of the request, that it's three days, are real. They build in this ambiguity. They never lie, not for a second, but they expose the fact, you're really desperate, aren't you? You really wanted to hear it that way. And people do that, you know, when people are so desperately clinging onto something that they need to be true, they'll take any shred, any hint, the slightest hint that it might be, and they'll, you know, take hostage of that. They'll hold dear to that. 
You know, and that's exactly what they do. The, in the ambiguity is intentional. It's part of the mockery, and it fits perfectly in with this larger theme of playing with him. So, this is true all the way till Marcus Bechoros. Marcus Bechoros, is a, there's a shift that happens. And so, the Pasuk says, page four, second Pasuk, you know, you know, there's one more left. One more strike that I'm going to, you know, deliver to Paro and to Egypt. Afterwards, he's going to send you out, this time for real. Kala is like the Targum reads it, Gemira. It's a full letting go. I'm actually going to let you go fully. Now, he's actually going to, you know, Forget about his terms. Forget about everything that he says. It's a full letting go. And that's actually what Rashi brings from the Medrash explicitly. So look at Rashi, uh, two lines down. No, finally, when Paro breaks after Makas Bechoros, he breaks. And we see that in Sukkim. It says, you know, serve God on your terms, like you guys said. And Rashi says, Everything like you said. Not like I said. Batel lo eshalach. All of these three examples that he brings are the cases by which they were negotiating. Batel loa shalach, you know, the loa shalach, the initial attempt to negotiate was batel. Batel miva mi'olchim, or batel rakto nechom verkem yutzag, it's a full letting go. This time it's all on your terms. Everything you said, I accept fully. And the Haimik Dover brings that on the kala. Lo yachshov od, he says this explicitly, right? Kala, the full letting go that's going to happen. Hi, McDover says, Lo yachshav od sheishalach al meshech gimel yomim. El legomri yitzia lechirus. You know, this finally says, okay, even the three-day thing, everything is broken down. You know, because Paro is broken down, not by his own accord. He struck, he's, you know, the blows that were delivered to him were so much, he's broken down. And Mitzrayim is broken down too. And this is what happens, right? Because in the same paragraph, when God is informing that power is going to send completely because he's broken down. Wait, let's see. Oh, he also says, you know, a second source, again, and part of this process is that you have to speak in the eyes, in the, in the, in the ears of the nation. When you shall borrow ish from Me'et Rehum, from his peer, and the woman from her peer, silver and gold. And, and in this process, God will give the the sense of value for the Jews in the eyes of the Egyptians. And the man Moshe, he was exceedingly great in the perception of Egypt, in the eyes of the servants of Paro, in the eyes of the general nation itself. Which is a crazy thing, right? I mean, contextually, not all of the Mefarshim agree that the request actually happens after Makas Bechoros. Because how could you say the Bechi Pazon, they were in a hurry, how could you say? Although a lot of Mefarshim do, and from the way that the Sukkim presented seems to imply that. But some Mefarshim do say, that it actually happened right before, you know, in between the warning of Makas Bechoros and when Makas Bechoros actually happens. To give room. The point is, at this point, it's crazy to say after everything they've experienced, especially if you think that it's happening after 
you know, Marcus Bechorish, but which they knew very well about it anyway. So it's still crazy to say that in the process of borrowing out their things that was part of the initial request, the Egyptians are going to see the Jews as valuable. You just broke them down. And part of that is seeing their value. And this is when the request has to happen. What's the request? She'ela doesn't necessarily mean to borrow. The ambiguity is built into the word itself. It could also mean request. Right? And the psukim that a lot of the Nefarshim bring in order to justify that. You know, I brought multiple Nefarshim. The Rashbam, the Rabbeinu Bachia, the... I think I brought somebody else. Chizguni I brought also. They all quote the fact that you can... No, it was actually a full giving. Don't, don't give me this nonsense. They were, they were requesting to borrow the stuff. No, they were requesting an explicit, a total giving over you know, it's clear. You know, as the Pasuk says, you know, ask it from me and I will give it to you. I will give the goyim their, your, your, your inheritance, you know, your lots. And it's clear even in the Pasuk that they bring, and all of them bring this Pasuk or Pasukim like this, it's always that Sha'al means to request. And of course, that's how we read it in Megillah Sesta, right? Page five. What's her request, Esther? You know, Sheila. Within this context, and not everybody reads it this way again. But I'm suggesting that the ambiguity is built into the word itself, and they use the same words that Hakadosh Baruch Hu had told them to use. You know, to build in the ambiguity itself. And what also seems clear is that that ambiguity was maintained even in terms of the transaction that happened. So, I mean, build a scene, right? Makas Bechorosh just happens or it's about to happen after all these Makos have just happened. And you go and you say, okay, we need to go. You need to give me this, this, X, Y, Z. So, they give it either because, I think it's a mix of both, but either because, they actually saw the value of these people. What was happening, they actually understood. Look, there's a contrast. There's a difference between you and me, and I can actually appreciate the fact, you know, once you're broken down, once they're so broken down, I can actually, you know, once I've been stripped of everything that I need to latch on, I can actually finally see with some clarity the difference between you and me. And so they wanted to give them, and that's the measure that says, you know, they asked for one, you know, and they said, no, no, take two. You know, not the not only that, the Ha'i Mekdara, which I wish I would have quoted, but he, you guys can look it up. It quotes it in this Pasuk. When it says, you know, it's a difference in word from now than when it was before. But when it, I can't find it even here. I'm too messed up. <laughs> this is all a mess. But when he says, when, when, when they actually talk about requesting it this time, the words change. It says, Ish me'es re'ehu ve'isha me'es re'ehu before it hadn't used that term. And that terminology, as the Ha'imic Dover means, they're friends. They're gonna ask their friends. What? Yeah, yeah, they became friends. The beginning, the initial request, you know, was with the Mitzvah, you should ask, you know, your neighbor, that's what you're gonna take, the people living around you, that's what you're gonna take. Now it's you're gonna ask your friends. The Ha'imic Dover is 
you know, stretching the venetati to say, not just that he's appreciating the value from the outside, they actually saw them as friends. He goes as far as saying, like, look, a cute little example that he brings is in the time of Choshech, they were paralyzed. How did they eat? How did they get their needs done? How did they do anything? The Jews. With the Jews, or they could see, not just in their actually dwellings, wherever they would go, they would, they would be able to see. <laughs> the Haimek says they actually assisted them. They're like the little helpers for the, for the whole time of the Choshech time. That's crazy. They were friends. They saw it. So even if you don't want to take it, I agree. Like, even if you don't want to take it that way, is straight. So they come, they ask for what they ask for, and they didn't say anything back. They're not going to say, for what? That's a little bit rude. If you're talking about they're saying, we need this. Okay, I actually need this. Can we go? They gave it to them on no terms. They didn't specify. This is what I'm suggesting. Part of that ambiguity is they never specified how long. It was just implicit, implied in the moment that they're asking, you know, that of course they're not going to ask. Whether they don't ask, you know, the Egyptians, the terms of this transaction, whether they don't ask because they find them valuable, because they were even friends, or because there is this implied sort of threat of violence, like, you're going to give that to me, right? <laughs> Do you see what's... Have you looked around? Do you see what's happening here? You're going to give that to me, right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, fine. So whether they do it... And I think it's a mix of both. You can, those can coexist with no problem, right? The fact that somebody has awe in your eyes, like you find awe in these people, you know, that's an amazing... That includes both of these aspects. And so what I'm suggesting is that the ambiguity was built into that request. So they asked. They didn't specify terms. Mitzrayim doesn't ask for terms. And they hand it over. And at this point, it could be the end of the story. Meaning, at this point, Paro sent them out completely. Uh, the Mitzrim gave over their stuff, which seems to be completely implied in the transaction. The story could end here. And in fact, in terms of what happens next, this was never included in part of what was told to Avraham. You know? Dan Anochi, I'll, I'll judge this nation. And afterwards, you know, they'll, they'll come out wealthy people. That's the end of the story. Yamsuf is not mentioned, definitely not explicitly, but according to most, not even implicitly. So the story could actually end here. And it makes sense, okay? You know, these guys were broken down. They're finally finished. You know, you could say, you know, everybody's broken down. Okay, everything is resolved. Except for this one move that God does. Crazy. There's one move that God can do that can change this whole thing and make it, you know, burn in flames. One thing. It's crazy. So they leave Mitzrayim. They're on their way out. They leave, you know. Guys, you gotta turn around. What do you mean? Guys, you gotta go. Go back where? Not all the way. You know, you're going to head back as if you're heading back to Mitzrayim. You know, on that path back to Mitzrayim, you're not going to head back all the way. You're going to settle Lifnei Piachirot, Bein Migdal Luven Hayam, Lifnei Baal Tzifon, in front of Baal Tzifon, Nichot Achonol Hayam. You're going to go, you're going to come, you know, set, you know, back to Mitzrayim, travel a little bit, station there, and just wait. You guys are going to watch. You guys have to see this. I'm telling you. You're not going to believe if I tell it, so just 
Sweet. You guys have to see how this whole thing triggers. Again, the context that Paro lets them go, that the midstream let them go, that they're friends with the midstream. Guys, wait. You guys, you guys haven't seen the full picture yet. It's incomplete. There's one little piece missing. I'll show you. Just turn around. Just wait. Okay. And this literally drives, you know, the whole story nuts. Changes everything because now it, everything is re-triggered for Paro. The whole thing comes back. That ambiguity of, wait a second, it was three days, right? Oh, they're coming back. Oh, they're coming back. It was three days. I knew it. It was three days. They're coming back, guys. Guys, they're coming back. You know? And they stop. They stop. What do you mean? The messages come. I don't know what happened. They stopped. They stopped. What the heck? Let's go. They cheated us. You know? And the whole thing reframes. That's crazy. <laughs> crazy. The one move that they could have done to trigger the whole thing back again. They're coming back, guys. Boys, they're coming back. We're having a party. Crazy. Crazy. And you know what? They also, the Mitzrim latch onto that. And they also said, yeah, we were also messed up. We were also played with. We never said that they could have it to keep. Why did we say that they could have it to keep? We just said that they could have it. I, that they, yeah, of course we meant we were lending it to them. Of course the whole thing was three days. That's what we were always talking about, right guys? Right? And they literally have this collective insanity that they all buy into in which they rewrite what happened. They rewrite in their memories the story that took place. That's exactly what the Pasuk says, right? His advisor says, Rashi said, come back. They tell him what's happening. That they're clearly escaping. They were, they were supposed to come back. They started coming back and then they decided not to come back. And now they're just like rolling around. We don't know exactly what they're doing. And that triggers. And everything switches. In the blink of an eye, everything is re-triggered, recontextualized. Crazy. And of course... That ambiguity is built in on so many ways. So one of the things that Rashi says um, on page six is that actually one of the places where they come to encamp, Lifnei Baal Tzephon, is of all places, where do they decide to stay? The only God left of all of Egypt. That's where they decide to encamp. I mean, is this not, you know, and of course, like Rashi says, The whole thing is to trick them. I mean, what an amazing, you guys want to read this? I'll show you guys. Hey, Ben Israel, you guys think these guys are so pure, whatever? Look at how they dive for the first moment, the first hint of something that they can interpret to, again, re-trigger everything, all of that viciousness. Crazy. And it's not just that. You know, when they come, the whole Rech of Mitzrayim, they come, you know, with the full force of, uh, the full animal force, all the tanks, you know, the equivalent of tanks, you know, the horses and, and everything for mobility. You know, the whole Rech of Mitzrayim, Rashi says, and with him was all of the remainder of Rechev. You know, with, uh, of, the, of the jewels, of the riches. What about the, what about, um, Sorry, of the flock. Where did this come from? Where did these animals come from? If you're going to say it's from Egypt, what do you mean? Of course they had animals. Why didn't they have animals? 
all the flock of Egypt died in the plague, right? Endeavor. If it's Israel, didn't they take all of, that, all of it with them? So where did they come from? These were the people that were the Yorishamayim of Mitzrayim. These were the top of the top. These were the, the you know, these were the guys. These were the Tzadikim of Mitzrayim. These are the guys that were the first ones to jump. Let's go. We gotta go. They were triggered. And look at how this this medrash ends. Unbelievable. Mikan haya Rabbi Shimon Omer, kasher shedemitzrim harog. The the most kosher of all the mitzrim, kill him. Tov shebenechashim. Why? The greatest of snakes. Ritzotet mocho crush his brains. They're snakes. Oh, they were nice. Oh, they, you know, they, they happen to interact with you on nice terms because of the specific conditions. You want to see their true colors? Watch, guys. Go back. It's going to trigger everything. And these guys showed their true colors. It's not just Paro. It's all of Mitzrayim. These were the Yore Shemaim of Mitzrayim. That's a crazy imagery. The most kosher, Tov Hashim, you know, the greatest of the snakes. And they're just snakes. You didn't believe me? You thought they were friendships? I couldn't let it finish like that. You know, you know, guys, I couldn't let it finish that way. I had to show you these guys are snakes. That's amazing. And so, you know, on so many different levels, what power, what, what, um, what Yisro says later on in Parshas Yisro, when he comes and Moshe's recounting the whole story of Yamsuf, uh, not just Yamsuf, of all the Tismet Shrine, and including there is Yamsuf, on page 7, the last two sources, Yisro says, Ata yadati ki Now I know that God is the greatest of all the gods. Because with the very thing that they had applauded, you know, that was the thing that trapped them. And so Rashi says, you know, You know, you could also read, Zadu is a word to indicate that they were preparing, preparing some food, stewing it up. You know, in the very pot that they were cooking, they got cooked themselves. And of course, I mean, this whole story of Yansuf, this final blow to Mitzrayim, is an amazing story of poetic justice on so many levels that they just experienced. They were looking in front of them. I mean, can you imagine what it would be like to experience the unfolding of this? absolutely just un indescribable collective insanity and not just collective insanity collective reshoes this is evil these guys are snakes look at how they jumped the desperation the fact that they couldn't let go the fact that they needed to either you know they, what was the mission the mission was to kill the jews if they can't get them back you know of course that's what it was they're going with everything it's all out it's the final blow and that's what ends up you know drowning all of them you guys dove right in. Guys, go right ahead. And that goes with the entire theme of all the ambiguity, of all the getting played. They got duped. This is the final duping of Mitzrayim, right? This is what causes them. They literally run straight to their death. And it's poetic on so many different levels in terms of the irony, the crazy, you know, just poetry of the symphony of how all these pieces are working together. And I'm just going to point out a few. Yeah, and with this, we'll actually end. 
me see. Of course, remember what started this whole thing. When the Rambam says Paro's initial choice, he brings it back to the Pasuk, Hava Nishakemalo. You know, let's outsmart him, referring to the nation. You know, who's he talking to? In the Pasuk, it's clear, he's talking to Mitzrayim. It is a collective endeavor that he starts it. And what does he say? You know, what, what starts, you know, you, we don't know what they say. I mean, there's a small little description of the plot. If the war is waged upon us and they're going to join our enemies and whatever the heck that's supposed to mean, you know, we see how everything began. And it all begins. And the next thing, the first step of their great plan of ensnaring Bnei Yisrael is Vayasimu alav saremisim leman anotobesivlotam. They appoint, you know, taskmasters, managers leman anotobesivlotam in order to afflict them with their charge, with their with the burdens that that the Mitzrayim had. Vayiven aremiskenot leparo, and they had to build these storage houses for Paro. What did they build at Pitom vet Ramses? They built Pitom and Ramses. And the Gemara asks, and this is the last source of page six. What do you mean? Put it on him. Managers. He appointed managers on him. It should say, you know, in the process, Ben Israel were appointed managers. What was the thing? Paro came out and he actually started working with them. You know, he joined them in the field and he said, guys, this is a national project. This is all for Egypt. You're not going to join the national project? No, no, I really can't. You don't understand? She's, my wife is pregnant. Your wife is pregnant. What about Paro? You understand? Paro's out of here. You got to guys, you guys. So Vaisimu Allah Sarimisim, it's on him. He's the one that got his toolkit out and started building it out. Come on, guys, we're going to do it. And slowly he started slipping away. And that's how the Midrashim describe it. And slowly, you know, once those managers were in place and they had the structure, then they started enforcing quotas. And after they started enforcing quotas, then there started being consequences. Not and slowly that got the ball rolling. You want to hear a crazy thing? Crap, I can't find any of these verses. <laughs> I'm all over the place. Okay, I'll just say it by heart. And if you find the source, you find it. But I'm sure that it's here. Oh, here. Page five, last one. When God says, go back to Pihachiro, to the mouth of freedom. That's literally what that place is called. Hupitom. This place is actually Pitom, the city that they had built. And the reason why we call it a different name is because they became free here. And like the, the Gemara actually says, that same Gemara that we brought on page 6, end of page 6. You know, they're saying it's basically the same city. Pitom and Ramses is just one city. So the crazy thing is that the whole thing of where they actually end up inheriting all of their spoils, all of their riches, and it is in the very place that started the whole thing. Back where it began, it's like you know in those movies where like the hero has to confront them, like in the place where it all started. Like this is where it all started, and not just that. It's not just in terms of the riches that they inherit, 
what the reparations that begin here and they end up you know getting paid back with all of the wealth of Egypt that they ended up bringing it's not just that but the fact of outwitting the Jews this is where they get back by them themselves being outwitted by the fact that they were so desperate in needing to get the Jews crazy the place itself is back where it all began and it's not just that they're in the Yamsuf right So, where is the Yamsuf? It's definitely not the Red Sea. Where is the Yamsuf? Page 7. Kemo le Yamsuf, vesuf hulashon agam shegedelimbo kanim kemo, vatasef basuf. You know? Quotes another pasuk of where we say suf. You know? Yamsuf, it says suf. Where do we say that? And it brings the story, and this is crazy. Veluyachla od hatfino. And the whole story of Yocheved needing to hide Moshe, she couldn't hide him anymore. You know, she built a nice little box for him. That's where he put him. That's where it was. Yamsuf is the same place where Moshe had been put in the beginning. That's crazy. The very waters that ends up obliterating them or the waters, and this is the crazy thing, Havanit Chakemalo, as the Medrash read it, was, as the Medrash read, read it, was, let's throw all of the babies in the water. What water? The Yamsuf. Crazy. This is, these are the waters. And by the way, if it's not clear, in, in other places it describes it as Yeor, which is Nilus, which is the Nile River. The Medrash says the Yamsuf is part of the Nile River. So part, and I'll, I have that here. It's important, it's important source. Where is this guy? It was right after the one you just said. Oh, yeah. So when the Havon Ischakim happens of let's ensnare them, let's see what we can do. What's the decree? Let's throw all of the firstborns into the Nilus. What's the Nilus? The Yamsuf. What does the mother of Moshe do? What does Yocheve do to save herself from the decree? She puts Moshe in the Nilus. Who ends up taking her out, taking him out? Basparo. The only reason Moshe ended up growing inside of the kingdom of Paro is because Basparo took him out because of the fact that Yocheved put him in, because of the fact that Paro had made a decree that all of them have to go there. What? That is nuts. That's crazy. Right? That's what caused this whole thing, what basically caused Moshe to be Moshe, which by the way, what does Moshe's name mean? I took him out of that water. That's Moshe's name. Wow. That is so crazy. So it's not just that Havanit Chachemalo is Mida Mida on so many different levels. Not just the place of Pitom and Ramses themselves, where it all began. The Yamsuf itself, you know, they drown right in there. They go right in there. What a crazy story. What a crazy story of poetic justice. And of course, without this, there would have never been the closure that was needed. And that's why it's called Alpiachiros. Right? Shenasu Sham Benichorin, here they actually became free. And that's an amazing idea. I mean, talk about the Haggadah, talk about feeling the narrative of the story. That's a crazy sample of just feeling the transition of like what they must have felt. Forget about leaving Mitzrayim. This happened, this was all extra. Kodesh Baruch didn't need to do any of that. He didn't promise any of that to Avraham. All of that was, I just want you guys to see. 
Just see, taste from my perspective, what it's like to see, and you'll see. And unbelievable, I mean, and the sense of justice, you know? Wow, that's so crazy, and on, built on so many different layers. And the feeling of the contrast between these bunch of snakes and what the one Bnei Israel had done, which is the exact opposite, leave everything. Where are you going? I have no idea. Does it look bad? Of course it looks bad. You know, these guys, Egyptians are coming, you know, the elite unit, the elite squad. Of course it looks horrible. What do you mean? And look at the contrast. One are a people that became free. One is a people that is trapped. And through that being trapped, they become played. And so the story of, or at least one theme of the story of Itzias Mitzrayim is Asher Hisalalti Mitzrayim, how I played them. Look at these guys. You don't want to be these guys. You don't want to be these guys. It's not a life to lead. It's not a life for free people like you. And until this closure happens, they can't be free. But once it happens, they become free. Al-Piachrus Shesam Sham Nasu Bene Khurin.